Hello and welcome back. And if it's your first time, welcome. Now, I don't know about you, but I find it hard enough just to get through the week and keep up with all my emails. So I've got great admiration for anyone that can write an entire book. Today's guest has written four. Brian Fulcheck will be known to many of you in the US and the UK. And as we discussed in a moment, Brian has worked with established insurers, startups, a leading consulting firm, and more. And so he is as well-placed as anybody to comment on what is going on in insurance, insurtech, and everything else in innovation. I haven't read all Brian's books, but I have read the two volumes on the future of insurance, and they have some great examples of how both established insurers and startups have successfully used innovation to grow their businesses. We're going to be talking about that in a minute. I'm Matthew Grant, partner with Robin Mertens at Instec, and now we are based in London, but we are talking to the world, and 2021 has been another busy year for us. And if you're not already one of the 150 so companies we are working with from insurance and technology to help untangle what is going on in the world, and you want to find out what you're missing, well, you can find out more on the website, www.instec.london, or contact us on LinkedIn, Matthew Grant, or email hello at instec.london. Okay, we've got a lot to cover in this discussion, so let's find out what Brian's been up to. Brian, you were very gracious to have Robin and I on your podcast. I look back, actually, it was season one, episode 19. So it would be great to be able to return the favor. How are those podcasts going? It's a ton of fun. Um, They've gone really well. And every single conversation, I've walked away with something meaningful. I mean, of course, ours quite a bit. Luckily, the subscriber numbers are doing well as well. But um, if I'm not getting something out of it, that's a bad sign for me about the quality of the show. So it's it's been really good. No, well, I think it's a bit like giving a party, you know, 50% of it is if you enjoy it, then, you know, that's good enough. The chances are everybody else will, and if they don't, at least one person actually got some something good out of it. So yeah. glad to hear as well, going well. So Brian, a bit about you. You are currently an advisor. You're doing a whole bunch of things. People can find those on the website. I'm sure you're going to yeah. talk about them as well. But also really intrigued to see you've got a career. You started off at Liberty Mutual. You've worked at Beasley. You've worked at Hiscox, so three well-known insurance organizations there. You also worked with a couple of startups, Hi Mali yeah. and Guard Hat. And you've even managed to somewhere in there fit in writing 35 articles for Inc. And you released <laughs> two books last year. I felt exhausted just reading that list. I didn't know how on earth you managed to do all of that. How, how, what's going on? How do you, how, what's the secret <laughs> to productivity and uh, getting so much exposure? It's fun. I like when I'm heavily engaged in things and, um, you know, it's just sort of my energy, but it has been amazing. You know, the the time I spent with carriers was huge. I've gotten a lot of exposure to what it's like at a startup, which is really interesting and invaluable and incredibly different from a, you know, well-established company. And then, yeah, the other things is just, I've got a lot of ideas and I love engaging with people about them. I'm just thankful to have the platforms to do that. I realized I actually missed another employer out from that list, which was McKinsey. McKinsey was unreal. Every day I felt like a complete idiot, which is probably why I spent all of my time in the insurance practice, because at least I understood the the core subject matter. But um, you know, it just it pushed me tremendously. And I knew I wasn't I wasn't someone interested in the partner track. Um, I did want to go back into insurance. All of my moves since McKinsey have been about, you know, is there is there some genuine opportunity here that I, you know, once I learn about it, I almost can't put it out of my mind. I don't see how I could leave it be. Uh, and that's what sparked me to go from, you know, one opportunity to the next. I've written four books. They're, they seem very different to her self-help personal development. 
and two are insurance, but I think actually all of them are self-help because it's all about, you know, how do we spark seeing some barrier that we now know how to overcome through the lessons and, and guidance of those who have come before us. I'm writing about what I'm thinking and seeing myself and what I'm learning as I talk to others. So it it sort of comes naturally and hopefully that makes it more accessible. Maybe they're not the most, you know, academic books, but um, that's not the intention. The intention is for them, for a reader to walk away and say, yeah, you know what? I have thoughts about what I can do differently in my context now. So if, if those are the footprints that I'm leaving behind, fantastic. Well, yeah, I mean, when you say it comes naturally, I think we all know when we write anything that it, the sort of the easy part is getting the thoughts down on paper. The hard part is actually turning it into something that's readable. And, you, and you've definitely done that. And the reading it on Kindle, of course, as you well know, I'm sure you, you can see what other people have highlighted points. Of the oh, book. Yeah. And actually, you know, there's a lot of highlights in there. One of the ones I liked, actually, which maybe we should talk a little bit about is um, there's a comment in there talking about the issues, not so much legacy technology, but it's, it's legacy thinking. Is that, mm-hmm. is that something you, in your experience, you're finding, you know, is that the big issue or is it still just slowed down by the, the technology? Well, some people get frustrated that I don't point out explicit technologies or you know, solutions that you need to go with this provider or that one. I think all that's actually irrelevant. Like, yes, there are great solutions and great providers, and there may be better choices for this kind of thing than that, you know, for you in your in your particular situation. But that's not the key. Because even if you put in the best core system, if your company is not really ready for it and you're not willing to, you know, take on the flexibility it can afford you, then what was the point? You know, it's like buying a Ferrari when you have a two-mile commute that's bumper to bumper traffic and no one breaks five miles per hour. There's no point to that. I talk a lot about culture, about values, about mindset, humility. That's where innovation and change comes from. So you can be a multi-hundred-year-old company and be highly innovative and highly open to change and recognizing where you can be better and where you can learn from others or set the scene for what the future looks like. And you can be a brand new insurer or brand new provider and be stuck. Because you come in with a closed off thinking about what things can be or how they should work. There is no explicit you know, license on being flexible or being nimble or having open thinking that startups or legacy players get or, or can have access to. It is ultimately a choice. It could be a hard choice. It could be hard to implement. But it's a choice each of us and each company has. And that's that's why I think the books resonate with people is when they feel stuck, they recognize, actually, I can do something about this. And it may mean I need to change companies, or it may mean I need to look at my company differently and see what I can do differently. What I really liked about the book, Brian, or one of the many things I really like about it is your your case studies. And you do write those in a way that really brings them to life. And you've clearly done a lot of work to understand not just what people would pick up from sort of doing desktop research, but going to talk mm-hmm. to a lot of people in those companies. If you were to choose one of those case studies that you think most epitomizes you know, both the challenges, but maybe the the opportunities to be had in the in the large incumbent insurers, which one would yeah. you choose from the, the first book? I always point to uh, the State Compensation Fund of California, SCIF, because they don't just have all the barriers most of us have, you know, culture, politics, IT, budgets, all that. They have actual politics because they're part of the state and there's tons of constraints that come with that. Their staff's unionized. They have salary caps. I mean, there's so many things that they're up against and, you know, they're over a hundred years old, yet they changed. And 
they kept challenging themselves. They made incremental changes. Their CEO said, you know, we're, we're just refining what we've already done. We need to go back to the drawing board and come at this another way. And you see that throughout where they really very honestly share where they weren't doing well. I mean, it's a, it's a very raw and honest case, um, but also where they recognize they tried a little bit better, which is what many of us do. And then they said, hang on, this is not good enough. We need to do more. And they talk about how they cut through and did that. And that I think we could all take lessons from. And that theme seems to come through of this incremental change. And it's not easy, but you've got to keep going. And I, one of the case studies that I seem to recall, you were talking about you know, the, the recommendation for the team that you were dealing with, which I think was our internal innovation team. You've got to build a coalition around you within the company and, and actually yeah. make sure that once you've got the idea or you've got the pilot, you can then actually go to the next stage and, and make it not necessarily easy, but, but just possible. I mean, that's what strikes me about where a lot of, and I think we're seeing less of these organizations now, but the innovation teams in the incumbent insurance have struggled because they can take things so far, but then they really struggle to be able to get buy-in from the organization because people have just got their day jobs and it just takes a long time to get decisions made. Yeah. And they have other priorities. And if you weren't keeping them abreast of what you're looking at and hearing what they're working on, how could you expect them to respond positively and proactively when you bring a new idea to them that sort of probably smacks them across the face. It's like, I didn't have capacity to hear this right now. I have my own fires to put out and I don't have any budget to do anything with it. So that's very nice that you like this thing, but you know, leave us alone till next year. And the other point you made in the book, which was you released it in December, 2020. So this was before some of the, the, the fallout we've seen in the, in the stock market for some of the publicly quoted insurtech companies, but you were a little bit dismissive you know, in concept. You didn't you didn't mention names, but about yeah you know, some of these larger organisations that were essentially just trying to tackle. I say just, but because it's not a small thing, but they were they were tackling some of the the the, the big insurance applications out there. Yeah, you know, claiming they could do it differently. A lot of it's around the marketing. Yeah, you know, we've all seen as we're recording now. Yeah, the, the the big companies, the big name companies out there that have either fallen well below their IPO offering or have fallen yeah. back close to them. What do you think the future is? Is is that just proving your point there that actually that's a really difficult area to 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 play in, and you do need incredibly deep pockets to be able to compete against the existing companies? And really, yeah. the future is more about niche. Is that what we're going to be seeing? I so I think you can play a big uh, a big market game. You just you can't do it just on and and I use the word just intentionally. You can't do it just on marketing and cheap pricing. You know, a lot of people have moved past the word disruption. I hang on to it because I think that's where opportunity is found. Is where where is something different existing that we can latch on to and move forward? Because without that, all we're left to do is play the big advertising and pricing game and try to share steal. And that's. Long term, I don't know how you can win at that game because someone with bigger capital, you know, more access to it, even if you're overfunded right now, at some point, you still can't compete with the balance sheets of the Avivas and Geicos and whoever else of the world. So, you know, yes, you can have some success underpricing and being clever, cheeky marketers, but if you don't have a genuinely different, you know, kind of thesis and material advantage, and that's what I go into in the second book quite a bit. Um, that game doesn't end up working out. And it doesn't mean, you know, you can't make money in the interim. It doesn't mean your investors don't do well. I'm, you know, I'm not saying any of that. Um, I just don't think that's a long-term strategy. And the nice thing is the later generation of startups, I think have recognized that is you can raise money on hype, 
but your business model can't be. So you do see a really different approach to risk, to capital, to genuinely changing the operations and not sort of laughing off, you know, with a bit of hubris distribution. You know, you can't just cut out agents and suddenly you're better than everyone else. It's not that simple. Acquisition is still expensive and hard. So I, I think uh, there's a lot of material change going on right now. And those are the startups, I think, ultimately stand a better chance. Yeah, I mean, we're learning, and probably no surprise to those of us who've been around for a while, that that brokers and agents are very resilient, and you know, most of the market still needs them. I guess retail, yeah. yeah, in the UK, for example, we've got aggregators and don't buy our car insurance through brokers anymore, but most of the world still relies on them. And you know, that distribution point you make there is, yeah, for me, it's one of the things I look at first for anybody that's talking about, you know, insurtech MGA is well, how are you going to scale your distribution? Because yeah. the best idea in the world is it's going to go nowhere if no one's actually going to help you tell the world about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Google AdWords are expensive. So you can't just cut out distribution and think your your cost is zero. Yeah, exactly. I had a look at the contents list of your second book and I'm very looking much looking forward to getting into that. Particularly I saw you had Neptune flood in there and that whole opening of the US market and the NFIP, the National Flood Insurance Program, opening up to uh, the, I guess I would say commercial market, opening up to the public markets for insurance. It's going to be really intriguing about what's happening on them. How do do you choose those companies? Because you you know a lot of people, you know a lot of companies. How did you distill it down to what was it, six six examples you had? There's, uh, There's eight that made the final book there was a ninth that had to pull out because of some some things going on in their business side and the timing of what they could and couldn't share you know there were a few that were going public um so suddenly you know what they can talk about publicly becomes complicated um so a lot of it really was i was looking for someone with a material advantage so is i want there to be a genuine lesson in there when i look at that business do i learn something about oh here's an interesting thing that could help me understand how to succeed and cheap or good at marketing isn't good enough. So that was first and foremost, and that helped me select down the population of potentials. Um, I talked to the founders at all of them. I mean, these are this is all done on firsthand research. Uh, and you know, for some of the the companies I talked to, it was clear that they viewed themselves as either the smartest person in the world or, you know, God reincarnated. Um, and I I don't I don't know what the lesson is in that. So if I'm reading it, what's the takeaway? Hire this person because they're the only one who can make anything work. And I got that from some of them. It's like, you know, this one guy was saying how insurance is stupid and he's the only one who can fix it. It's like, great. I don't know what the lesson is in that. So there was, I was looking for people who would tell a more genuine story and talk about the ups and the downs so we can take some learnings from that. And I, I was left with a story of material advantage and how they built that. But also it's not all roses. And you have to be willing to talk about that. And so that was a, a pretty key thing for me in selecting who makes the final cut. My experience is the same. If you find the CEOs you'd put a bet on and they are they are humble and they are willing to share mm-hmm. when things didn't go well. And those those make the really good stories. But I mean, I know how hard it is to write these things because we do the podcasts and we do yeah. various other interviews with people. And it is very, very difficult to to get a coherent story, not because people don't want to share it, but you've just got to ask the right questions and and dig deeper. And and so, yeah, it, it, yeah what struck me is you've really brought it to life. And you know, I know this area pretty well, and I, you know, I'm learning things about it and takeaways. So you've definitely succeeded on that, and I think that is a big Great. judge of anything, isn't it? And I want to talk to something that's actually from your own background now, in terms of 
what we're seeing out there, and that is claims. So yeah. claims to me has been a little bit of the sort of the, the poor cousin of InsureTech back in the early days. Yeah. You know, Willis Willis uh, InsureTech quarterly quoted 18% of funding has gone into claims. But to me, that's a really compelling area to go into, not least because I think the business case is actually the easiest one to to justify. Because if you can demonstrate how some analytics or some part of the claims handling process can save money, it goes straight to the bottom yeah. line. Whereas if you're trying to justify yeah. underwriting or analytics or distribution, you've got to actually believe in the concept and then you've got to believe you can deliver on it. But what, what's your view on that? I mean, you've had experience in that area and you've seen more broadly. So you know, is, is, are we going to see yeah. more happening in, in claims now? More is happening because of the pandemic, because it had to. And obviously it depends on, on what line of business and what kind of claims. Um, but certainly in the overwhelming majority of the volume of claims out there in the world, which, you know, based on frequency, it's it's more of the physical claims. So, you know, auto, motor insurance, property, whether commercial or, or homeowners, et cetera, there was a need to keep the lights on and you couldn't simply not handle the claims. One of the problems I think as an industry is we focus so much on increasing the efficiency in our claims operations, which is fine. You know, I'm an ex-consultant. I love efficiency. I'm all for it. But if you look at the balance between indemnity and adjusting expense, indemnity is massive. You know, if I, I, I always said, if I took out my entire team at Hiscox, we weren't that big. So it's a few million dollars, but we had hundreds of millions in indemnity and reserves. So why do we keep focusing only on, you know, we need to make this process this much faster? Well, that's fine. But what am I going to save? $200,000 a year in FTE costs, which I'm probably not going to be able to realize anyway. Okay, I'm just going to jump into what Brian is saying here for a moment to make sure this point about indemnity is clear. So basically what Brian is saying is that the real savings in claims comes from reducing the cost of the claim itself. Now, of course, saving expenses in processing the claim is useful, but the cost can be reduced a lot more if, for example, someone's roof has been damaged by a storm, can get it repaired quickly, and they can get back into their house, reducing further losses to the building and costs for additional living expenses whilst that person can't get back in their home. Now, also the FTE that Brian mentions there, if you're not familiar with that term, well, it means full-time equivalent. It's a way of talking about the cost of people roll back to what it would cost for one person to be hired full-time, which of course may also be split between the costs of different people. So you can work out what the saving is or the cost of number of hours or days in FTE or full-time equivalent. That's it. Back to our discussion. If that speed leads to a lower indemnity because the claimants are less agitated because we're getting to them faster, we're paying them faster, it's more amicable rather than adversarial, then I want to do it. One of the startups who worked at High Marley, this was the, the story. Yes, claims were closing faster. Yes, it was smoother and, and customer sat was higher. But unsurprising to me, indemnity was lower, unlike for like claims, because people were happier and things were closing out faster. So that was the real savings. It's not the efficiency. Um, yeah, you know, we should increase capacity of, of our, our operations, but it's really about lowering how much the total cost of the machine is. And the machine is not the processing, it's, it's the raw inputs and that's dollars. So we need to find a way to focus back on that as a, a claims function. And I think then the story is profound, but you have to get to it. But I wonder if there's something happening here that I've seen quite a lot happening in other technologies, which is the story that gets you in the door might not be 
where ultimately the real value is. So yeah, you know, you, you, when you talk about indemnity and the savings that can be made there, obviously the customer still needs to be looked after. That's still quite hard to quantify when you're talking to somebody about using some new technology. Whereas if you you were talking about LAE, which I think is a loss adjusting expense, yeah. if you can show how that can be reduced, and I was out in California a few weeks ago talking about remote claims assessment and you know, some things people are doing now with mobile phones to get information to remote adjusters. There's a really clear and compelling business case there. It might only be a few million dollars a year, but if that's enough to get it into the business and then you can start to demonstrate the indemnity ones, that's how you scale. But yeah. I, you know, I saw this 30 years ago with people selling data for what well, we talking about flood again for flood modeling. And what was sold was a you know, like a fancy map of a portfolio and it was in the UK and you could see where the high risk were and low risk were. That sold it to the CEO. But as soon as the, the underwriting and the actuarial departments got hold of it, they, they weren't interested in the maps. What they wanted was the data behind it yes. to go into their rate tables. And they got they got all the value out of it. But the thing that sold it wasn't ultimately the thing that actually was used. Yeah. That might be what's happening is you've got to sort of think about it. it's a double act really. You know, you've got to figure out how do you get in the door and then how you how do you scale once you've you've got in. Matthew, can I share a trick that I used? I felt like underwriting distribution marketing would always get the investment. And this is when I was at Hiscox, and that's not a knock on Hiscox, but uh I would take whatever my savings was in claims and use our combined ratio target to ratchet that up into premium. So if I was going to save a million dollars. I would also talk about that as that's like $10 million of premium coming in. And when you're in a growth focused business, that's huge. And people were suddenly like, oh, wow, 10 million. It's this is the exact same benefit to the company. But you, it's little things like that. You have to think about what's the framing of your audience and can you talk that game? And that's, you know, it's going to be different in every company. Some won't need to do that. But I found when you're really growth focused and investing in growth, when you're talking about bottom line, even though it's real money, and it may be the same net benefit, it's not going to stack up subconsciously to people because they're primed to think in top-line growth. And we have to be aware of that as claims professionals. Brian, I think that's such a good idea. I'm worried people now are going to be putting pause and going off and, uh, <laughs> and writing that down and, and immediately rewriting their business cases. So if you're about to rush off, please do come back and join us because there's more to come. But just yeah, just to make sure I'm, I understand that completely. So what you're saying is that, yeah, back to our point about, you know, your case, you said a million dollars saved on the bottom line. You've got to generate $10 million of premium to be able to go and, you know, that, that's, that's the equivalent. Another million of bottom line. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so effectively, you're, you're looking at you know, two different ways of thinking about numbers. It's a bit like when you think about you know, the, the cost of something you buy, if you actually load onto that what your, your gross income was before you got taxed, you suddenly realize that you know, it's not, yeah. it didn't cost you 100 pounds in the UK with some of our tax rate, break cost you 200 pounds of yeah. earned income. So no, that's a really, yes. really helpful trick or tip, I should say. So thanks. One thing I want to come back to as well is what's been happening on pet insurance. Lemonade have also now started to go into pet insurance. Yeah. But you know, what does that tell us about, about people and the future of innovation is if people I think don't well we all think actually we know don't really want to buy insurance if it's not regulated you mostly mm. wouldn't buy it except when it comes to your pets which is where people are buying it and they're prepared to spend a lot of money on their pets that they might not be willing to spend on something else but what's your takeaway from that i think we need to think not about um how do i sell this policy but what's the engagement someone is willing to give to this issue and when you hone in on that, you can figure out where the insurance needs to be sold and what the insurance is. And sometimes that may be 
that you can sell insurance just as insurance and you don't have to hide behind it. Maybe that's because of regulatory requirements. They know they have to get it, so they're willing to. Or maybe it's because they love the asset so much and they're thinking about protecting it and I would do anything for it that I'm willing to get insurance to make sure of that, like a pet. Um, or none of those things is true. And so you have to think about, well, what are other ways I can get the insurance bought without you know, without having to be explicit about it. And that's where the whole embedding conversation comes in. It's about the operating model behind the scenes and how seamlessly and fluidly it goes in. And every time you expose the fact that you're now separating out and buying insurance, you're creating friction. And that friction is what eats away at the little bit of engagement someone had. So we need to find where's the true engagement in that, that asset or that exposure, latch onto that you know, that acquisition process or that servicing process and find as many ways to remove friction from exposing the fact that they're now also buying an insurance policy because you're asking them to engage in something they don't care about. You have to go back to what is it the customer actually cares about and let me let go of what I care about because we in the insurance industry are not the customer and we lose sight of that far too often. And then we miss the chances to see how could we actually distribute this more successfully. Yeah, and yes, you made that point in your book as well about you know customers have lost sight and contact with their customers. I mean, it's back to the broker and agent model because they yeah. are one step removed. But I, I've got a question for you, Brian. Before I want to come back to that embedded yeah. one, have you got have you got any pets? I have a cat, and we have pet insurance that I'm not happy with. So I'm willing <laughs> to shop if anyone's listening. Well, we have a dog, and actually, Steve Mendel, who runs Bought by Many, yeah. when I was grumbling to him about the price of dog insurance. He said, "Well, you know, one thing you must do is you must buy." liability cover in case your dog runs out in front of a car or something and uh, mm-hmm. liability cover the advert for bought by many costs about nine pounds a year versus pet insurance at oh, that's five pounds but how much do you think have a guess in the uk it would cost for a medium-sized dog to have its teeth cleaned you can give it in dollars if you want it's probably like 40 45 pounds that's what i would have thought 450 yeah. pounds that's what in dollars that's about wow close to 600 dollars for the dog to get yeah. its teeth cleaned i mean that's yeah, crazy. You, That's more than human with well, X-rays. Well, he's all, yeah, the dog also is his haircut bill is more than the, than the yeah, fair family enough. haircut bill. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we might be taking out pet insurance now for the dog. Now he's kind of got to be... Uh, well, I'm clothed. waiting for Bought by Many to come to my state. They are in the US and I have some friends uh, who, who are helping Steve run the business. So I'm I'm anxiously awaiting for their the rest of their US expansion. And now I'll think about liability, although I don't think my cat's going to cause a car accident, but we'll see. <laughs> I don't know, you watch those cat videos on YouTube yeah. and you, you you wonder. But yeah, embedded, send the way forward. But what does that mean for the existing insurance companies? I mean, they're again, another way to lose control or lose the contact with your customers and they're not then become at risk of being commoditized and just the capital yeah. provider. And there are other people that can provide capital just as efficiently as insurers can. I'm glad you said that. I have a whole line of thinking about there's a few things and embedded is one of them that I think are coalescing right now that will change dramatically uh, a number of spaces within the insurance industry that are very large markets, personal auto, certainly, I think property, more so on the commercial side, actually, but commercial and personal. And um, those are much bigger conversations. But uh, I was talking to Nigel Walsh the other day, who I know you've had on a, a couple of times, and we're talking about embedded. And he was saying, Embedded, yes, it's a hot thing. It's got a lot of focus, but we're still thinking of it only on the acquisition side. And this is where I think, to your point about commoditization and you know, does a legacy player still get to matter? 
what happens when, you know, whatever the, the experience is that we're embedding insurance into, what if there's 15 or, or 16 different insurance offerings that are embedded into that? How do you sort that out? How do you service that? How do you deliver that, whether it's claims experience or otherwise? We're still only really thinking about the acquisition side of it. And I think that's um, that will continue to be the, the focus for at least 2022. Nigel, have you heard that for this uh, this Sunday? I'm looking forward to my 7:45 a.m. text with some good reviews for this particular podcast. As Brian's been kind enough to call you out, so that kind of leads Brian into the next question, which I think you might have just partly answered. But if you had to take one pick for what's really going to happen in 2022, so we we you know, see lots of predictions and top tens, and, and we're doing it ourselves. But mm-hmm. if there's one thing above all else that really is going to change, for better or worse, what would you choose? It's a really tough question because there's there's so many point answers depending on what piece of the market you're in. I think this is a year of the early reckoning, if you will. This is a point where I was going to say we're coming out of the pandemic, but who knows, right? Um, unfortunately, you had carriers who made a lot of change in 2020 out of necessity. And that started this bifurcation where you had some who woke up and they said, hang on, we can do things and we can do them really quickly and digitally and differently than we've always done them forever. And it unlocked something for them. That snowball is rolling and picking up more snow. And for others, they did all these things out of necessity. And now they said, okay, now we're in digestion mode, or we've done our investments. We're digital now, we're done. We need a break, or you know, we've spent what we're going to spend for the next five years. I think 2022 is where those differences, which didn't really matter yet, um, because everyone sort of had a lot of capabilities, I think it's going to start to filter things out and you're going to see a separation of players more. I mean, back to your point on Liberty, like a Liberty versus someone else who is of similar size and scale and scope, who hasn't been pushing themselves as much, you'll see more separation there. I don't think anyone's going to go out of business because of this, this year, but I think you're going to see the pack separating a bit more. And to me, that's very interesting because that starts to tell what the market's going to look like five, 10 years out. And that's what I'm interested in. And also, I think we're going to see a talent flow from those organizations. Absolutely. Large incumbents that don't get it right because people, they are, they're losing patience. There's money out there and and that money likes experienced insurance people to go and build new businesses at scale. And maybe that's where they don't need to reinvent. I mean, we've seen a few of those coming in with you know, Convex is probably the, the probably in that sweet spot of, of two, three years old now in the UK, big specialty insurer, you know, coming yeah. in at a couple of billion dollars worth of, of capacity and, and funding to run that. You know, that's that's yeah. a very different model than having to do it from the ground up. Um, well, good. We'll come back and we'll, we'll check in on that one, Brian, see how you got on in 12 <laughs> yeah. months time. But uh, you've given yourself a bit of an optionality in that by saying- was, Yeah, it was vague enough <laughs> that I should be right either way. And then uh, just as we kind of get close to wrapping up, um, chefs are always the best people to ask for recommendations around restaurants. What would be your recommendation around other podcast or podcast channels from our friends out there to uh, to recommend to people? Within the insurance world, um, other than than your show and my show, which is the future of insurance, because uh, I can't come up with a different title for anything I do, apparently. I've always been a fan of spot-on insurance. I like the mix of people, carriers and solution providers, and just sort of good ideas in general. So I love what they do. The insurance guys, that's another one. What I try to look for is ones that aren't purely vendor shows. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing against the solution providers, but um, 
hearing a mix of perspectives, I think is really critical. So, you know, the good news is there's not a ton of shows out there. So you can quickly do a Google search and see, you know, or search in your podcasting app, see which ones pop and just look at the guest list. And, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why I've continued to tune into this show is, you know, anytime I say, well, I'm busy, I don't have time to listen. Let me just see who the guests are. Then I don't have a choice, but to listen. And I think it's that, right. It's like, can you get pulled into listening because of who's on there? So I say, just look for that mix and see what kinds of different perspectives each different show could bring to the table. That's good advice. And, you know, I guess it's a call for anybody out there that wants to have a little project for 2022, which is to, you know, there's lots of, you know, the top 100 insurtechs to follow and, and all that. But I, I haven't yet come across anything that's actually had any legs on it. I mean, a few pop up now and again, but, and I don't even really care at the top. I just, it's always quite fun to know, you know, who are the sort of, who's in the caliber of, or who's in the category of, mm. of uh, insurance related technology podcasts worth listening to. So, uh, unless you've got anything, Brian, you come across. That's my request or challenge yeah. for anybody. Go and please. No, that's good. the lists that are out there always include shows that don't even exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. So that's a sign that they're not great lists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or some that aren't very yeah. good. We're, we're yeah, those yeah. Ones. Um, excellent. Well, it's not. We're going to wrap it up because you've got you've got thousands of things going on. I'm sure you're probably working your next book. Um, but just before we go, is there anything we haven't or I haven't asked you about that you'd like to talk about so we don't miss that? No, I think I've rambled on plenty for your poor listeners, but hopefully it's interesting. It, it's just, you know, we should continue to push on these conversations and and get into it and ask. And I think there's so much brewing. It's a really fascinating time for the industry. And, and then finally, Brian, with travel plans, you know, up and down in the air, inside, outside, any plans to come over to the UK next year? I'm always planning to come over to the UK, whether or not I actually do is a different <laughs> question. Um, I I've had the honor of being able to do that regularly in the past, you know, working for Brits for 10 years. Um, and I so miss it. So hopefully, whether it's 2022 or, or maybe soon after, I would love to come back over and I'll have to time it around one of your events because it would be a shame not to participate in something live. Yeah. Well, there's so many of those now. I mean, we did yeah. five live events after July, five dinners. You know, there's almost certainly something around when you come over. Yeah, it would be whether it's in the UK or if I'm over in the US, let's try and make it a goal for 2022 to both, yeah, both be in the same place at the same time. And maybe even yeah. somebody might want to, see, to hear what we've got to say. Yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Good. On that happy note, have a great holiday period and uh, look forward to catching up again in the new year. And many thanks again for sharing your time. Thanks, Matthew. Okay, that's it for today. Don't forget www.instec.london or click through on the episode notes to find more details. Finally, if you like what you are hearing, then please do let us know. It makes it all worthwhile.